A fierce debate is currently unfolding in the Danish public sphere as well as internationally. On the one side of this debate, there are researchers who feel an urgent need to pool their resources and use their expertise to push society in a sustainable direction. They launch petitions, write letters, organize demonstrations and rethink their own work practices in support of the green transition agenda. On the other side of the debate, there are politicians and media pundits who intend to fight, nail and tooth to preserve what they perceive as politically neutral university system. They too write letters condemning the vogue character of certain research environments and take steps to restrict the scholars' ability to engage in political issues. While the scholars perceive themselves as intellectual activists who employ their knowledge of various phenomena in the service of the common good, the politicians view this ambition as a dangerous corruption of the scientific ethos. The wider public reluctantly applaud the researchers for their engagement with the defining issue of our time, the climate and biodiversity crisis. But they also voice concerns about the role of research in contemporary society. When did research become politicized? What happened to the old division of labor where researchers uncover facts and politicians react to these through bills and policies? At times it seems like the division has been turned upside down. Researchers act politically, while politicians invent their own alternative facts to support whatever ideology they are promoting. Surely this has implications for democracy. When scholars become activists and politicians become researchers, the very foundation of contemporary society is set in motion. But perhaps society is moving in a positive direction. Perhaps we should embrace the notion of intellectual activism. And perhaps we should even welcome the challenge presented by the notion of alternative facts. In this final episode of Green Transition Podcast, I talked to Associate Professor at the Department of our Organization, Emil Hustel, who will help me ponder these questions. While frequently engaging in various forms of climate activism, Emil's most prominent contribution to the Green Transition Agenda has been to launch a petition among researchers and university teachers aimed at advancing the focus on sustainability within the Danish university system. The petition's main objective was to rewrite the preamble of the Danish University Act by replacing the focus on growth with an emphasis on sustainability. 558 researchers and teachers signed the petition. Now, two years later, the government finally seems to be listening. Emil, thanks for joining me for this final episode of the Green Transition podcast. You're welcome. In all the other episodes of this podcast, we have focused on the findings that scholars have uncovered through their research. So in this episode, we will redirect our attention to the work of researchers themselves, focusing on the overall purpose of research rather than specific findings. First of all, Emil, could you tell us about the petition you launched in 2019? Of course. Well, it all started in uh, 2019 when uh, two of my good colleagues, Cecilia uh, Gleop and Anja Zweigop-Pauls, and I uh, wanted to uh, to somehow use our own qualifications to, to make a, a difference, make a change uh, in terms of the uh, climate and biodiversity crisis. So instead of uh, joining yet another demonstration or writing yet another angry Facebook post, we decided to do something with uh, the skills that we, we have. 
And so uh, that's when the idea uh, came uh, about looking at the uh, preamble to the, uh, to the Danish University Act. And uh, here we discovered that there was a, a particular focus on growth and employability in the, in the University Act. And so I, our idea uh, quickly became to uh, substitute the focus on growth for sustainability within the, this preamble. And so we decided to write a letter to the uh, former Minister of Science and Education, Ane Helsborg Jørgensen, uh, and asked our colleagues to sign that letter. Uh, but we also had other proposals than just changing the preamble. We also proposed to allocate funds for strategic research and teaching initiatives within uh, the green uh, area, so to say, uh, but also uh, to somehow allocate funds for uh, changing the internal operations of universities uh, in a green uh, direction. And so we, we sent out this letter and uh, 558 uh, of our colleagues at Danish universities and university colleges uh, signed. And most of them actually came from the humanities and social sciences, which was a surprise to me because uh, these disciplines uh, might seem like the least likely to support uh, a green transition agenda. At least that's how I thought about it initially. How was your initiative received by the government? Well, first it was uh, met by silence. I mean, a few parties on the left responded, but uh, the government was quite reluctant to sort of uh, take a, a position on the matter. They pointed to the fact that they'd already allocated funds for green research. But the problem was, of course, that a lot of these funds came from the pool of free research funds, and that was directly against uh, the proposal that we had uh, advanced. So, so uh, nothing really came out of it until one and a half years later when a student-driven organization called Education for Future decided to relaunch our campaign. And unsurprisingly, perhaps they proved uh, much better than us at uh, political lobbying. And so they quickly got the, uh, the uh, attention of the Socialist People's Party and they decided to call a parliamentary hearing on, on the matter. And all of a sudden, the minister was much more accommodating than previously. And she even stated that she would sort of call on her colleagues at the Danish parliament and discuss whether the preamble could be changed to sort of support, support the, um, the focus on sustainability uh, rather than growth, perhaps even. And um, her argument was that uh, sustainability played a part in uh, most other parts of the educational system. And why shouldn't it not play a part? in uh, vocational training and in universities. So, but now we have a new Minister for Science and Education, uh, Jesper Petersen, and we've also just been through a, a pandemic. And so I think the, the, the task now is to remind him uh, about the path identified by his predecessor, namely to uh, recognize the role of the university system in responding to the uh, climate and biodiversity crisis. Have you received criticism from your colleagues in academia? Uh, yes, indeed. I think there is, uh, one could say there's two main lines of an objection. And uh, one uh, objection came from people who perceived uh, the university as politically neutral, who thought that the only purpose of uh, university employees was to somehow pursue the, uh, the truth and nothing but the truth, so to say. And, uh, and they also had sort of uh, strong alliances and resourceful people outside academia that, that somehow supported them. So, for instance, uh, the member of parliament, Henrik Dahl, from the Liberal Alliance, was, was very vocal in this regard, uh, but emphasizing how universities have become politicized and how that was a problem in terms of uh, 
science being about uh, uncovering the truth, so to say. Uh, the second line of criticism came from people who actually sympathized with the idea, wanting to support uh, the green transition agenda, but also had worries about uh, this initiative being a slippery slope. Because if we decide to uh, have uh, universities pursue an activist uh, agenda within the climate and the biodiversity crisis, then what would be next? What other political issues might be relevant uh, for universities to engage with? What if, for instance, nationalism became a thing that universities should support? Should we also then embrace uh, their uh, ability and their possibility to engage in that particular agenda? And so they worried that if we, we took this step, we would sort of be caught in the political thicket, so to say, without uh, the possibility of getting out again. Uh, and, and also, these people wanted to protect the local mode of uh, democratic governance that has characterized the Danish university system for decades, where study boards are in charge of uh, deciding the, uh, the content and the structure of specific educations. So if we open the door to having the government decide these things, then somehow we, uh, we, we, we would break uh, decades of democratic rule at universities. How did you respond to such criticism? The first argument advanced by people who perceived the university as politically neutral, uh, we quite vocally rejected as a naive fantasy and pointed to the already existing politicization of the universities. So if you look at the preamble, for instance, growth is mentioned, and if you look at uh, university governance more generally, the focus on employability is, is quite strong. And also at CBS, for instance, where we are now, uh, the notion of transformation is also very present. So the idea that universities are engaged in societal issues and political matters uh, saturates the whole university system, and therefore the whole idea that universities should be politically neutral seemed to us a, a complete fantasy. And so in a, in a rebuttal to Henrik Dahl, uh, we actually argued that universities are always engaged, and then we turned uh, his argument against himself, say, stating that uh, if he really sort of thought that universities should be politically neutral, then he should also work to uh, remove the notion of growth from the preamble. He never really responded to that. But the second argument was more difficult to reject, the argument about uh, this initiative perhaps being a slippery slope and compromising the de democratic uh, mode of governance at universities. And that actually led us to revise the original letter that we had uh, wrote to uh, authored to Anne Helsby Jørgensen. Uh, here we uh, quite specifically emphasized the need to protect the free research funds and study democracy. Uh, so emphasizing that the green strategic research and teaching initiatives should not compromise the free research funds. So that was a, a pretty important uh, adjustment that we made to the letter and uh, that was prompted by, by this kind of criticism. So I think we reached a, a, a nice middle ground that many could support and we also ended up getting a lot of these uh, critics uh, on board. But in all honesty, does this initiative not represent an attempt to restrict the free spirit of science? Well. If you think about it, universities have always been engaged in political agendas. So when the University of Copenhagen was founded 500 years ago, it was actually founded as an attempt to expand and strengthen the theological foundation for the Catholic Church. And when the DTU expanded in the late 1800s, 
It was as a response to the second wave of industrialization and the need for trained engineers that came out of that societal development. And then in the 1970s, when Roskilde University and later Aalborg Universities were founded, uh, that was on the back of a political ambition to strengthen problem-oriented education, which was precisely aimed at addressing societal uh, issues. So universities have always been caught up in societal developments and have been engaged in political transformations of all kinds. So as one of our co-signatories uh, at, at the petition, Peter Lauritsen, who's a professor at Aarhus University, uh, puts it, the vision of the value-neutral university is a mirage, actually. It's a, it's a fantasy that somehow serves uh, specific purposes, but has very little to do with the reality as such. And uh, so it's not really a discussion about whether or not universities should be engaged in political issues. It's about what agendas they should be engaged in and what agendas they should promote and probably also instigate. Um, so accepting the fundamental role of science and education in addressing the climate biodiversity crisis is a matter of engaging in a conscious and reflexive manner instead of somehow duping ourselves into thinking that what we do is disengaged and disinterested. And so, to be sure, what, what we are proposing is not that the government should in any way regulate the conclusions we reach, the methods we use, the perspectives we employ, or the literature we engage with. That's at all not what we're proposing. Uh, we're also not proposing that we all should somehow transform ourselves into amateur biologists or autodidact climate scientists. That, that would really be a, a silly idea. Uh, we're also not proposing that we should surrender the mode of democratic government as characterized the Danish university system for decades. Not at all. I mean, what we are proposing is, however, that we allow societal issues such as the climate and biodiversity crisis to inspire the problems that we address. So instead of having society define how we do research, we're merely suggesting that society inspires the problems that we address. And that is, in a sense, not very different from the way that research is conducted already. So it's not a corruption of science, in our view at least. On the contrary, it's an attempt to be conscious and reflexive about the agendas we promote and instigate. Okay, so if we accept that researchers can and perhaps should act politically, should we then also accept politicians who invent their own facts? Uh, that, that's a good question, and I think there are at least two ways of responding to it. So one answer would be a simple no. We need to have some common measure of the truth in order to uh, create a proper conditions for democratic conversations. Uh, I mean, if we do not agree that climate change is both real and man-made, then it's difficult to have a meaningful debate about how to address the problem, that's for sure. But the other way of responding to the question is a more complicated no, but... Uh, I mean, while we should not accept counterfactual claims made by politicians and opinion leaders, I genuinely think that we should welcome the challenge presented by the notion of alternative facts. Uh, not only does it help us appreciate that the truth is not an obvious and uncomplicated phenomenon that simply has to be uncovered in order to be accepted as legitimate, it takes much more for findings to become facts. Findings have to be found and understood, articulated, framed, positioned, negotiated, disseminated and defended in the public sphere in order to be considered true. But the challenge of alternative facts also help us escape the sedative and unhealthy idea that scientists have a naturally given right to be heard and taken seriously within the public sphere. 
So the emergence of alternative facts forces us to fight for our position and to put more energy into disseminating our research in ways that make sense for ordinary people. I really think that's a positive and democratic development. And maybe this podcast series even could be seen as a way of meeting the challenge of alternative facts, as a way of communicating expertise in a different register than what we're used to, as a way of achieving real, tangible impact on society. And hopefully more people will listen, but if not, we'll just have to do it better. Democracy is not a mollycoddle scheme, to use an expression from Frederick Taylor. It's the idea that the best argument wins, and if the notion of alternative facts can help us see that the good argument requires skillful dissemination, then I certainly think we should welcome its emergence. Thanks a lot, Emil. It was a pleasure talking to you. The pleasure was all mine. Allow me to briefly summarize what I see as your main points. First of all, science and politics cannot be separated in any meaningful way, which means that researchers always act politically, whether they like it or not. As such, you urge researchers and teachers to consciously consider how they act politically and what agendas their work promotes. Your recommendation is that more should engage actively with the climate and biodiversity crisis based on their own expertise. Secondly, you welcome the challenge of alternative facts because it helps us appreciate that truth is not given and that findings need lots of work to be transformed into facts. They also help scientists realize that in order to successfully counter the emergence of alternative facts, they need to strengthen their capacity to communicate research in more meaningful ways. With this, I certainly agree, and I think you are right in describing this podcast as an attempt to do just that.